Welcome back to Foreign Office. I'm Michael Weiss, Director of Special Investigations at the Free Russia Foundation. And today I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Simon Ostrovsky, who is speaking to us from Baku, from his second reporting trip to Nagorno-Karabakh. The first time he went several weeks ago, uh, at the height of the conflict was from the Armenian side. Now he's reporting from the Azerbaijani side. Simon, welcome. And uh, I know you just got back from a lengthy, your second day in the field. I want to start just by asking you what you've seen. This is a conflict that sort of has been not dominating international headlines because of the U.S. election and the aftermath, the president refusing to concede to Joe Biden. And yet it seems like it's a pretty significant event in certainly post-Cold War, post-Soviet history. Tell us what you've seen and what, what you're reporting. Uh, Hey, Michael. Yeah, it's um, really huge what's happening here in Azerbaijan. I was a reporter here back in 2004, 2005, working for AFP as their regional correspondent. And, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh was occupied by ethnic Armenian forces at that point already for about 15 years. And now 10 more years have passed. And so those territories were inaccessible to anybody in Azerbaijan for all that time. We're talking decades and decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The Azerbaijanis have been longing to be able to reclaim the territories that they lost in the first war. And that's finally happened. And so obviously for Azerbaijan, getting these areas back is a great victory. And people here are very happy. Of course, for the Armenians uh, of Nagorno-Karabakh, it's a great tragedy. And for me, having just been in Nagorno-Karabakh several weeks ago from the Armenian side, I was very curious to come back and visit from the Azerbaijani side to see the territories that they either had conquered in recent weeks or are now being handed over to them without a fight under the terms of the armistice that was uh, signed in earlier this month. It's just you know, kind of mind-blowing to be in a place for a couple of weeks and see the flags of one country flying everywhere, one language being spoken, you know, a whole set of just all of the attributes of state suddenly disappearing and it being replaced with a new language, new people, same buildings, same mountains, but everything is different. And so, you know, I wanted to see how Azerbaijan is A, handling the transfer of the lands to its control, and B, what they're doing there. So I should should also mention to our listeners that you were sent there by PBS NewsHour. You're a special correspondent for that network, and your, your work is also sponsored by the Pulitzer Center. I'm very interested in how this armistice was negotiated. I mean, it seems that the United States was completely absent from having any role, you know, intercessory role in in resolving this conflict or negotiating a diplomatic settlement. And really, Russia was the lone actor, uh, I suppose, in in conjunction with Turkey, if you're looking at another kind of great power uh, that's been involved. You did a piece, actually, for for my outlet, New Lines, when you were in the Armenian side coming into Karabakh. Talk a little bit about the technological prowess that Azerbaijan brought to bear in this conflict. It really seems like the Armenians were completely taken by surprise at how well the Azerbaijani military, you know, comported itself on the battlefield here, particularly in in the the area of drone warfare. The Armenians, I mean, they lost tons of material. There were really horrifying images, I think BBC shots of, you know, the Armenian convoys pulling away and just dead soldiers scattered, corpses throughout the street. Talk a little bit about sort of what went into this war, what you saw with your own eyes. I know, obviously, Azerbaijan is backed by 
not only Turkey, but also Israel, somewhat counterintuitively, because they rarely, Turkey and Israel rarely find themselves on the same side of anything these days. What kind of went into this and how did the conflict erupt now? This has been decades in the making and yet it really turned hot over you know, the last few months. I think there's, you know, some background um, that we have to go over first before we go into those details, because I think, you know, everybody who's vaguely interested uh, in this region knows that Nagorno-Karabakh is an ethnic Armenian area within the internationally recognized borders of Azerbaijan. But what most people who aren't, let's say, very deep in it, what most people don't realize is that when Armenia won the first war, they didn't just take Nagorno-Karabakh, they took seven ethnic Azerbaijani regions that surround Nagorno-Karabakh and depopulated those areas of their ethnic Azeri population. Well, there's been a lot of bitterness in Azerbaijan over the years. What's also happened over the years in Azerbaijan is that the United States and other Western powers encouraged and helped Azerbaijan build an oil pipeline, which essentially made it possible for the country to get incredibly rich um, over the last sort of decade and a half, starting in the early 2000s. And what the regime here decided to do with that money partially is to arm itself with the most modern weapons that it could possibly find. And so because Azerbaijan faces a European arms export embargo, there's no embargo from the United States, but the United States has a policy of not arming Azerbaijan with anything that it could use in a land war against Armenia. Azerbaijan, you know, had limited options for where it could go in order to arm itself and built a relationship with uh, Israel over many years that uh, eventually culminated in Israel not only selling uh, Azerbaijan some of its uh, latest uh, drone weaponry, um, but also licensing a factory in Azerbaijan itself to build um, Israeli drones that are called loitering munitions. Although these drones aren't terribly sophisticated, they're incredibly deadly. And as far as I know, they haven't been used in, you know, the amount that they were used in this most recent conflict in Karabakh anywhere in the, war, in, in the world. Just the onslaught of these loitering munitions was really devastating to the Armenian forces. What a loitering munition is, is basically a suicide drone. It hangs in the air um, searching for a target. And then when it finds one, it dive bombs and destroys that target. And they're uh, relatively cheap to produce. And Azerbaijan had a lot of them. The other country that Azerbaijan had been building its relationship with um, over the years was uh, NATO member Turkey. Mm -hmm. I guess that one's not as surprising because Azerbaijan and Turkey share a lot of cultural links and their languages are pretty much the same, mutually intelligible. Obviously, there's you know some big differences, but right. people from both countries, they're Muslim, they share the same Turkic heritage, the same Turkic language, they're friendly. And uh, Though Turkey is majority Sunni and Azerbaijan is majority Shia. So there is a sectarian difference. That's true. But both countries are uh, more or less secular. So it's, you know, it's not as sharply defined as it might be between countries like, you know, Iran and Saudi Arabia on the religious front. Right. So, you know, Turkey's involvement went far beyond what even Israel 
helped Azerbaijan with because Israel was basically just providing weapons. But Turkey was actually providing diplomatic support, full-throated support for Azerbaijan and its and its war against uh, Armenians in Karabakh, as well as uh, helping by sending Syrian mercenaries uh, who were affiliated with the Turkish military to Azerbaijan to actually fight. And so that's how, you know, Israel's and Turkey's involvement came about. You talked about how America was missing in action in this conflict, wasn't involved in helping negotiate the uh, resolution, not involved really in any way. And I think in a big part, that's part of the reason that the conflict could happen at all in the first place. It was like this sort of political vacuum, because after the United States had spent all this uh, political capital on getting Azerbaijan to produce an oil pipeline um, that went around Russia's territory so that it could get its oil out of the region, the Trump administration came in and completely forgot about this region. You know, a vacuum doesn't stay empty from very long. And very quickly, Russia and Turkey started vying for influence here. Right. You know, Russia, which has uh, perhaps better contacts with both Armenia and Azerbaijan than either Israel or Turkey ever had in this region, used that leverage to step in when the conflict first began to try to put the two sides to the negotiating table and figure out a resolution that would end the fighting, A, and that's important, but B, also bolster Russia's position in the region, as it turns out. Because one of the focuses of the story that I'm looking at is that, yes, Azerbaijan won this war, but it was also a victory for Russia, which hasn't had troops in Azerbaijan since the Soviet Union collapsed. And now this region, which is composed of three countries, Azerbaijan, Armenia, and Georgia, for the first time since the end of the Soviet Union, Russia will have troops in each of these countries in different capacities, but the fact remains. In Georgia, they have occupying troops in breakaway regions that Russia has recognized. And so that's obviously a situation that Georgia is not very happy with. Nevertheless, the troops are there. In Armenia, Russia has had a base for decades with Armenian permission, their allies. In fact, Russia and Armenia are part of a sort of quasi-NATO type organization. They have a mutual defense treaty. So that's been in place for a long time. And now, for the first time, Russia will have peacekeeping troops in the part of Nagorno-Karabakh that remains ethnically Armenian uh, after the end of this last war. But that area is technically within the territory of uh, Azerbaijan. And so, therefore, Russia has troops in Azerbaijan as well. And as we know from past uh, conflicts across the former Soviet space, when Russia sends troops somewhere, it is very difficult to get them out. Right. On a superficial level, to those not kind of steeped in the details or the kind of history of Russian peacekeeping forces, you look at the map and you look at the various players involved in this war. You say Turkey, the second largest army in NATO, American ally, although kind of a frenemy at this point, given what's transpired in the, the Middle East and particularly in Syria, but a NATO ally nonetheless. Israel, an American ally. Azerbaijan, an American ally. And, and by the way, one of the reasons Israel was so wedded to the um, Aliyev regime is Azerbaijan had floated the idea of creating air bases or takeoff strips for uh, Israeli fighter jets in the event that Israel decided to bomb Iran's nuclear program, right? So that was part of the appeal. And so you look at this and you say, well, okay, as you pointed out, uh, these territories, particularly the villages that were not part of Nagorno 
Karabakh that were ethnic Azeri villages that were taken by Armenia. Under international law, this this land is Azerbaijani. This seemingly on the surface looks like a, a success for a kind of, quote, pro-Western foreign policy. And yet, and this is one of the questions a lot of Russia watchers were asking themselves at the beginning, Russia allowed this to take place. They allowed as you pointed out, a, an ally that's in the kind of counter-NATO security pact, Armenia, to be to have their forces decimated and to have this kind of really almost quasi-spiritual defeat visited upon the Armenian people, given the, the way that they look at this enclave. And yet, the end result is not a victory for pro-Western foreign policy, but instead, counterintuitively perhaps, a victory for the Kremlin, because now they get to deploy more of their soldiers to, as you pointed out, a region that they haven't occupied since 1991. This kind of goes to the heart of how almost very nebulous the current state of geopolitics is. I mean, because we, we see all over a kind of cat and mouse game played between Russia and Turkey. It looks like openly antagonistic. I mean, Turkey has shot down Russian planes. Russia has bombed Turkish assets in Syria. And yet it seems to be more kind of like a mutual agreed upon carve up of not just the Middle East, but now the Caucasus in the absence of American power under the last four years of the Trump administration. Would you say that that's kind of how you see the lay of the land here? Or am I missing something? Have I got it wrong? No, I mean, that's exactly what it looks like. I I don't want to speculate about whether Putin and Erdogan had a backroom deal. But what I will say is that they've both been very cordial about each other and haven't been pointing fingers or accusing each other of meddling in affairs that they shouldn't be meddling in, which, you know, was the name of the game up until now, because they had a very difficult relationship over Syria. Right. They're just being so polite to each other that it just makes you think that maybe there was uh, some kind of uh, uh, a conversation that was had about what they want the future of this uh, region to look like and what their various stakes in it are going to be. And it's, it sort of almost feels like kind of top Ribbentrop pact type of situation where great powers get together and, and carve up maps and draw them and then just implement that. But I don't want to make the, that parallel too strong because at the end of the day, the shape of the map and the shape of the borders were to a lot of extent defined by the fighting that took place. And the fighting was primarily done by Azerbaijan and Armenia. It does seem that Russia intervened when Azerbaijanis were making so many advances that it seemed like they were going to totally wipe the ethnic Armenian entity in Nagorno-Karabakh off the map. And Azerbaijan was stopped in its tracks by this negotiation process. And they were basically asked to take what they had already gotten and uh, allow for the Russian peacekeepers to come in. I think for from the perspective of the uh, Aliyev regime, it probably would have looked really bad if they had essentially ethnically cleansed the entirety of the Nagorno-Karabakh region. Um, not ethnically cleansed in the sense of the Bosnian war where you go in and massacre people, but when the Azerbaijani army advances, ethnic Armenians flee and then are no longer able to return to their homes, which is something that I witnessed today, actually, because I traveled to Hadrut, which is a town that's not one of the ethnic Azeri towns surrounding Nagorno-Karabakh. It was an ethnic Armenian town within the borders of Nagorno-Karabakh itself. And uh, I went there today and there was no civilian population. The only people who were there were Azerbaijani troops and the city had pretty much been ransacked. There was graffiti all over the place and, you know, personal belongings um, just flung and strewn throughout the streets and you know, so, sort of soldiers happily 
walking around and enjoying the spoils of war. Yeah. So although the Azerbaijani president has said on multiple occasions that he considers the ethnic Armenians of the region to be Azerbaijani citizens, he hasn't so far done anything that would make it feel safe for those Armenians to come back to the areas that are now under Azerbaijani control for the first time. He pays lip service to this idea that uh, the areas they control are for all ethnicities, but they just haven't actually put any mechanisms in place yet. I'm not saying it won't happen, but they haven't put any mechanisms in place yet um, to allow for the return of any number of uh, ethnic Armenians. You know, the soldiers that I was talking to on the ground, I asked them this question specifically, do they see a future where ethnic Armenians might be able to come back to their homes? in in Hadrut, and they were very categorical about these houses are now for Azerbaijanis. Mm. Obviously, the soldiers on the ground don't make the decisions, but those are the emotions in Azerbaijan because there's so much bitterness uh, over the areas that Armenia took in the first war and for decades never allowed Azerbaijanis to come back to. And so it sort of perpetuates this um, cycle of retribution, which I think is, uh, is a mistake if Azerbaijan does go down the same road, makes the same mistakes that Armenia did after its first war, thinking to reconcile and form a lasting peace. They'll just be a new limbo, but from the other side. And what is the mood? I mean, you reported from Yerevan, or I assume from Yerevan in Armenia when you were on your first trip. Is there a sense of complete uh, disillusionment with Russia, a sense that um, where was Mr. Putin? Why, are we, why do we belong to the security pact? if Russia isn't coming to our rescue against uh, Azerbaijan? I mean, is there a way, in other words, for the United States or whatever's left of the kind of Western block of you know, EU, US, Canada to perhaps exploit Armenian sentiment and a, a sense of grievance that Russia had abandoned them in their darkest hour? Or is it more directed internally at the Armenian political class, particularly the prime minister, who seemingly hubristically perhaps uh, thought that this could never happen. Armenia would defend Nagorno-Karabakh and the Azerbaijanis would be routed. What's the mood? Well, I haven't reported from Yerevan. When I came to uh, Armenia, I, I transited through it just to get to Nagorno-Karabakh itself when the war was still going on on my first trip. But I've obviously seen the same news you have about what's gone on there. And, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of disappointment in Armenian society with the way that the war turned out and with the Russia's role in the war, um, because Armenians saw Russia as their biggest ally, which is the case, but you know Russia took this position of our mutual defense treaty um, doesn't cover Nagorno-Karabakh because it's in Azerbaijan. If Azerbaijan attacks Armenia proper, that's a different story. But since they haven't, you know, we're going to play this mediator role. On the one hand, on the other hand. They're also playing this armament role where they're selling weapons to both the Armenians and to Azerbaijan. So they're playing both sides off against each other. Right. You know, is there a way for Western countries to exploit this disappointment? I would prefer that the West didn't exploit Armenia's or anyone's disappointment to its own ends and that, you know, the great powers wouldn't get involved in the fates of these countries and that and that it would be up to the two countries to resolve their differences. Because what happens is that when they can't come to terms on their own terms, then, you know, great powers can use divide and conquer for their own ends and just uh, set the two countries off against each other, which 
kind of is what it seems to some extent happened this time. If uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia could reconcile with each other, and that would be a very long process, which would the onus, I think, on Azerbaijan as the victor in the war to spearhead that sort of a process, then they wouldn't need Russia as much for peacekeeping purposes in the first place. And I think that would be better for everybody if, if these powers weren't vying for, for influence in this region and just uh, left everybody alone. But on the other hand, I think it's really unlikely um, that Azerbaijan is going to take the steps necessary to go through that process of reconciliation, which again, I think is totally essential. So one of the, the themes of this show, unintentionally so, it's just it's happened as a matter of course with the various guests that I've interviewed, is trying to get a sense of, look, the last four years in the United States were an anomaly in so many ways. And yet some of the trend lines we have seen, America's withdrawal from the world, its uh, failure to enforce its own kind of security covenants, its own self-expressed security covenants, really began much earlier even than Donald Trump. But Donald Trump seems to have really accelerated this process and, and almost to a, a caricatured degree. Do you get the sense, I mean, you're, you're sitting in a hotel in Baku, perhaps you disagree. I don't think it's coincidental that this war broke out in the midst of an American political campaign to see who's going to be the next president for four years. We know what the answer to that question is. Is there a sense of those you've interviewed, perhaps in the Azerbaijani political class, or even just the man on the street, that, okay, this was sort of our one and only shot to do this without incurring the wrath of Washington or the international liberal order, for lack of a better term. I know that's a very kind of fraught phrase these days. And that with Joe Biden coming into the White House in January, there is going to be a pivot back to the status quo ante of American power, both soft and hard. And so therefore, we took what we could when we could. This is not going to repeat itself, this, this opportunity. Talk a little bit about the feeling on the ground. I think that's, uh, you know, a perfectly plausible explanation. But I also think it's only one part of the explanation because a lot has been going on in this region besides the absence of American power on the world stage. So, you know, we've got the coronavirus pandemic, which is uh, a lot of pent up energy of people sitting at home. On the other hand, it also means that uh, people are much poorer than they used to be. And that's a lot of social frustration that, you know, any country, but especially an authoritarian regime um, where the leadership doesn't really have a, a real mandate to be in charge in the first place, you know, is trying to manage uh, the expectations of its people. And then we had this uh, uprising in Belarus, um, just really weeks, starting weeks or uh, maybe a couple of months before the war in Azerbaijan began. I think if you're Ilham Aliyev, the president of Azerbaijan, you know that your people are poorer than they were and they see what's going on in Belarus where people have risen up against their leader. And you're probably scratching your head and thinking, man, what do I do to make sure that something like that doesn't happen to me? One possible thing to do in the absence of American power that you could potentially get away with is uh, have a small victorious war that's going to consolidate your popularity and your leadership for years and years to come. Yeah. And, you know, that's exactly what happened. One of the underreported uh, phenomena of this war, I did a long 
expose of the Azerbaijan lobby in Washington, London, and Brussels. This was several years ago for foreign policy. And for that piece, I interviewed quite a number of Azerbaijani opposition figures, people who were threatened or who had been thrown in prison or they, you know, their, their political parties dissolved or intimidated, harassed. I mean, this is a dictatorship, let's be very clear. And yet on social media at the, the outbreak of hostilities here, I saw a lot of these Azerbaijani anti-Aliyev activists really rallying around the flag and saying, you know, Nagorno-Karabakh belongs to Azerbaijan. And almost to a shocking degree to people kind of who observe internal Azerbaijani politics. So it does seem to have been successful in that sense, that it became this kind of national cultural point of pride. We are reclaiming our land, our territory, and this is sort of unfinished business from the collapse of the Soviet empire. And to that extent, I suppose Ilham Aliyev is successful in distracting from all of the internal problems and contradictions of his own regime and his own society. A hundred percent. And, you know, I think that those opposition-minded activists and civil society members and various others who were in stark opposition to the Aliyev regime just until recently are genuinely grateful to him for this war and for winning in it and for putting the Armenians in their place as they see it and for finally ridding the country of the shame of uh, the capitulation of 1994 with which they've been living all of these years. I think it's really difficult to exaggerate just how deep those feelings were here. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the other consequence of this Azerbaijani victory is that any hope for democracy, little as it ever was here to begin with, um, has really been put on the back back burner now because Aliyev has just uh, consolidated his power for years to come. I mean, if we compare it to what happened in Crimea, it was a po popularity bump for Putin when he annexed Crimea for a couple of years. I don't think there's going to be buyer's remorse in the same sense in Azerbaijan, but you know, who knows how long that popularity bump could last for him. Right. I think he's pretty pleased with himself at this point. Well, I mean, there are not going to be sanctions on Azerbaijan for reclaiming what under international law is the sovereign territory of Azerbaijan, unlike Russia occupying Crimea. Right. It's not going to throw Azerbaijan's relationships internationally into any kind of turmoil, and it's not going to hurt Azerbaijan's economy in the way that annexing Crimea and starting a war in eastern Ukraine hurt Russia. So, you know, they're just going from strength to strength. On the other hand, the one thing that I have heard people who I've spoken with here say is that their happiness about um, winning territory back is tempered by the fact that there are now Russian peacekeepers in an area of Azerbaijan where the ethnic Armenian population continues to live in Nagorno-Karabakh. Some people have said things like, well, we traded the Armenian occupation for the Russian occupation, and the Russians are going to be a lot harder to get rid of. You know, that is something that people have voiced. So on that uh, note, Simon, I really appreciate you coming on. I know it's late there and you had a long day of reporting. And we can see the dividend of your hard work on PBS NewsHour. Do you know when this segment is going to air so I can tease it? Yeah, totally. I mean, it's supposed to air on Monday, but I'll say that with a, the caveat that sometimes breaking news happens and stories get shifted and schedules change. But at the moment, um, it's supposed to be on your local PBS uh, station um, on Monday evening. Okay, great. Well, we'll look forward to that. Uh, Simon Ostrovsky, uh, thanks for joining us and do come back when you report from the next war that breaks out, hopefully not uh, too soon. Thanks for inviting me, Michael. It was my pleasure.